Good morning. Um, let's begin with a prayer that borrows from the words of Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, to us and answer us. Gladden the souls of your servants. For to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. My marriage began the afternoon of December 28, 1978, in a tiny Episcopalian church decorated with bright red poinsettias. I wore the lace-trimmed dress that my mother made for me. My father, of course, escorted me down the aisle to present me to the groom. After officiating the ceremony, the priest signed this certificate to make the marriage official. My marriage ended the morning of April 16, 2013, in a large, austere courtroom. I do not remember what I wore that day. My attorney escorted me down to appear before the judge. That judge flipped through this decree. He didn't actually read it, and he barely even looked up at me. He signed the last page, making the divorce official. My husband did not show up for the legal proceedings. The judge moved on to his next case. The attorney moved on to his next client. I felt as though the divorce just didn't matter to anyone. And if that were true, then my marriage didn't matter either. This took place on a Tuesday. The Saturday right before that, our middle daughter got married. It was important to her that her parents sit together at her wedding. So, there we sat, three days before the divorce, witnessing the bride and groom exchanging their vows, the same vows that he and I had exchanged at our wedding. Across the years of our marriage, my husband violated the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, with a number of women in a variety of scenarios. Those vows, those promises that he had made to me in that little church did not matter to him. But I know that my marriage and those vows mattered to Jesus Christ. And our study in the Sermon on the Mount this week only strengthens that confidence. With respect to marriage, in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, we read Jesus' comments on the misuse of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 by some of the Pharisees. Under this law, once a man had divorced his wife and she remarried someone else, the first husband could not remarry her even if she was divorced again or widowed. Therefore, 
he should be careful about making that decision to divorce her because he might not be able to reverse that decision. This law supported staying in marriage. We saw in these verses that when a husband found some indecency in his wife and divorced her, he provided her with a certificate that formalized the divorce. This prevented him from claiming later that she was still his wife, and it released her to marry someone else. Unfortunately, one of the prominent rabbis in Jesus' time was, was twisting Deuteronomy 24 to support his very casual view of marriage. In his perspective, a man could divorce his wife almost on a whim. He contended that indecency in a wife could include about any grievance that he had against her, such as that she wasn't as pretty as another woman that he desired. As long as he gave his wife that certificate, he was free to get a divorce and marry someone else. Now, there was some debate among the rabbis on this point. So, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Jesus responds by hearkening all the way back to God's creation of mankind. He first quotes a portion of Genesis 1.27. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Jesus then quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, that is, because of the way God created us, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He then proclaims, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus here testifies to the deep significance of marriage. To rip apart the one flesh bond is an offense against God as our creator. From creation, God has intended that marriage be one man with one woman until death do us part. God's design for marriage can't be dismissed with a certificate. Matthew 19.8, Jesus says, God says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. These documents have definitely protected me since the divorce, but they do not excuse the sin that ended my marriage. In the same way, the certificate mentioned in Deuteronomy 24 granted some legal protection to divorced women. It was not a stamp of approval on divorce for any reason. Jesus here shifts the conversation from how to get out of a marriage to the permanence of marriage. One of the questions in our lesson this week asks, is Jesus forbidding divorce or second marriages? In 1992, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, produced a position paper in which 118 pages are devoted to that question. 
This paper affirms with Jesus that adultery breaks the bond of marriage. Specifically, it says that the innocent spouse is free to divorce and remarry when the other spouse commits sexual immorality. Then there is that challenging verse, Matthew 5:32. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In addressing this verse, the PCA paper explains that divorced women in that society had no means to support themselves financially. So a divorced woman would almost inevitably end up in a second marriage, although she really should have still been in that first marriage. But this would have been the fault of the husband who divorced her, forcing her to get married again in order to survive. The authors of the PCA paper also cite 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 15. Here the Apostle Paul speaks to the situation in which a non-believer abandons or deserts his or her marriage with a believer. Paul maintains that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So the PCA position is this. When an unbeliever separates from the marriage relationship with a believer, the believer is free from that marriage and free to remarry. After much discussion, the PCA paper makes this summary statement. The Bible teaches that divorce is permissible in the case of sexual immorality or willful desertion of a believer by an unbeliever. This seems straightforward, but these issues can be complex and confusing. For instance, the paper's authors go to some length to define what behaviors constitute sexual immorality. They also examine circumstances that might be determined to be desertion of the marriage, such as the serious and all too common problem of abuse. Certainly anyone struggling in a difficult marriage or contemplating divorce or remarriage after divorce should seek guidance from the pastors and elders of the church. No one should navigate these waters alone. Marriage should be upheld where possible. It is the closest of human relationships because the one flesh bond is exclusive to marriage. And let's think back to Genesis 1:27, which Jesus quoted in part in Matthew 19:4. In the book of Genesis, the entire verse reads, "So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them." A husband and wife should not break their marriage covenant because it is the union of two people, both of whom are made in God's image. We are all created in God's image. So this informs how we treat all people. For example, 
In Genesis 9-6, God declares to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We should not murder people because people are made in God's image. James 3, 9 and 10. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This should not be so. We should not curse people because people are made in God's image. This same concept applies to the subject of oaths, which we also covered this week in Matthew 5. Here, Jesus commands us not to swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by our head. Um, I don't believe I've ever heard anyone swear by their head <laughs> or by any of those other things. But evidently, this was common practice in this day. According to the Old Testament law, simply put, if you take an oath, you're obligated to keep it. Yet again, some of the teachers of the law were inserting loopholes into it. They taught that oaths are only binding if a person swears precisely in God's name. If you swear by anything else, you can't be held to that oath. All that is really important is how you phrase the oath. Jesus counters this with, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That is, if your promise contains a loophole, you never actually intended to keep it. Do not deal with people with that kind of insincerity. Now, Jesus is not prohibiting all oaths here. Both the Old and New Testaments refer to oaths in a positive light. Oaths taken in God's name, such as at a court testimony or a presidential inauguration or at a wedding, are appropriate to those momentous occasions. However, in the normal course of life, oaths should not be necessary. Our promises must be completely reliable regardless of how they're worded. To break a promise to someone ignores the fact that they are created in God's image. It devalues them. Verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2 instruct us. In humility, value other people above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Honoring the image of God in people is costly, requiring us to set aside our own needs and desires for the sake of our commitments. Neglect and gossip and greed and self-righteousness are some of the ways in which I have prioritized my concerns far above the concerns of others. I bear the image of God yet my heart and actions often contradict his character. These sins pronounce me guilty before him. Is there any hope for a sinner like me? Yes, my hope rests in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 14 and 15 tell us that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is 
the image of the invisible God. Christ is that perfect, sinless image of God who died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. In 1 John 1, 9, the Apostle John encourages us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice here that John does not limit the type of sin that God is willing to forgive. It's not as though God pardons what we would label the misdemeanor sins, but not the felonies. No, God extends forgiveness even to adultery, wrongful divorce, unfulfilled promises, all the ways in which we inflict harm against others. God also offers comfort for the wounds caused by sins committed against us. To one degree or the other, we will all suffer because people will fail us. And so Psalm 147.3 is for all of us. The Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. My broken marriage, those broken wedding vows, my broken heart matter to God. Sometimes people aren't trustworthy, but Revelation 19.11 calls Jesus faithful and true. We can depend on him. Psalm 34.18 assures us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Near suggests intimacy, like in a marriage. Earlier, we noted Jesus' quote of Genesis 2.24. In Ephesians 5.31, the Apostle Paul uses that same quote. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul then adds, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A marriage between a man and a woman pictures the intimate relationship of Christ, the husband, to his bride, the church. Whatever our marital status, never married, happily or unhappily married, widowed or divorced, if we trust in Jesus Christ, we are members of his bride. Listen to these other amazing words from Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. A holy, pure bride, clothed in splendor. As the church, this is who we are. This is God's promise, his vow to us. When we behold the cross, the great price that Jesus paid to win us as his bride, we marvel at how much this eternal marriage 
and this unbreakable promise matter to him. Dear Father, we are grateful to belong to your church, which Revelation 21 portrays as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We praise your plan of salvation through which you hold fast to your people. Please fix our hearts on Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.